Good morning. Welcome to Gateway Community Church this beautiful Sunday morning. I'm John Malella, one of the elders here. I'm going to be bringing the message to us today. Our senior pastor, Ed Allen, is suffering for Jesus on a beach somewhere down south. So we're going to give him a break and take up the slack today. So a few weeks ago, I was going through some old paperwork. I don't know if you guys have your archives in your homes, going through some stuff. And I came across my old gym membership, my first gym membership card. Didn't even have a photo on it. That's how old this was. Kind of just a piece of paper that was laminated. And it was to Olympia Gym in Ridgewood, Queens in New York. Yes, I am a New Yorker. If anybody requires translation services, they will be available if you need to understand my idiom. So I started lifting there at Olympia when I was about 15. I used to go with my best friend, and it was primitive. I mean, compared to today, what do we have? We have Orange Theory, we've got Golds, we've got Planet Fitness, and they're all beautiful and, you know, fully calibrated and everything is shiny. Well, Olympia was a little bit different. I remember that in the basement, it actually had a basement. That's where you'd go to do the heavy lifting, to do the bench and the inclined bench. And I still remember lying there on on the bench, trying to do a bench press and looking at the exposed pipes on the basement ceiling. And sometimes the condensation would build up on the pipes, especially in the summer, uh, because there was no air conditioning. And I remember what it felt like to try to push up some decent-sized weight when rusty water is dripping into your eye. A little bit different situation than today's gyms, absolutely. One other thing I remembered about that gym, though, is if you looked at the walls of the gym, they were plastered with posters of Arnold Schwarzenegger. (laughs) There he is. Arnold. Yes, Arnold. Now, this is before he was the Terminator or the Governator. This was when he was the Austrian Oak. When Arnold came from Austria in the late 60s, he actually worked out at this gym. Believe it or not, right there in Western Queens, Olympia Health Club. So he actually did work out there. So why did we have posters of Arnold all over the place? For motivation. Every time we lifted, you know, to get that extra rep in, we, of course, would look at Arnold with that boyish grin on his face. We would be motivated to try to push a little harder. We wanted to be like him. We were 15. We were boys. We wanted to be like Arnold. That's what our desire was. You know, the posters and the intent behind putting them on the wall of the gym illustrate a principle of human life for us, that we are imitators. We're copycats. None of us are true originals. In our style, in our speech, and how we look, how we act, we're going to resemble something or someone. And we find that the more we give our devotion to something, Arnold, we become like that thing. We resemble what we revere. I'm going to repeat that for us. We resemble what we revere. Now, here at Gateway, we're trying to revere Jesus. We're trying to be more like Jesus. You may see the WWJD bracelets some people have. That's what we're about here. That's our purpose. We're trying to revere Jesus, to be like him. A few weeks ago, Pastor Ed defined worship as, worship is whole self-engagement with God 
on the terms that he prescribes and in the way that he alone makes possible, including adulation, devotion, and reverential acts of submission. I think that's a pretty good definition. I'm not just saying that for brownie points. I think that's good. God wants us to worship him and become more like him. But what if we get this wrong? What happens when we choose to direct our devotion away from God? The Bible actually gives this a label and calls it idolatry. Idolatry is looking for our satisfaction and security from sources other than God. I'll say that again. Idolatry is looking for our satisfaction and security from sources other than God. What does it look like when we get this wrong? Well, here's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at an episode in the life of Israel that illustrates what happens to a people when they choose idols. We're going to look at Exodus 32. So here's the plan. I'm going to read the text. I'm going to make a few observations about the text. And then I'm going to try to go deeper and answer some why questions. And then we'll wrap it up. So pray with me, please. So, Lord, I'm really aware that we're all in really different places this morning. I know that for some of us, you know, we barely dragged ourselves here. Maybe some of us are wondering why we're here. Some of us are doubting you even exist, or maybe even doubting that you're good. Some of us are running with you and enjoying you. Some of us have experienced our limitations, God. We feel the effect of aging, or we have illnesses. Some of us are dealing with grief. Lord, we're here, well, we know that you have the answer to all those things. And we want to open our hearts up to you right now for you to answer those for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So let me set this up for us. So the Israelites had been in slavery for 400 years in Egypt. And they finally get free. God sends Moses, finally, to free them, to lead them out. You know the story, right? The Passover, the plagues, the Red Sea gets parted. Miracles. I mean, it's pretty dramatic. You know, Pharaoh's army is pursuing them and is going to chop them to pieces. No, they get drowned in the Red Sea. So very dramatic things happen. And the, the people are basically being brought into the desert. And what God is trying to do is train them. See, people that live under slavery, they don't think for themselves. God wants to try to rid them of that slave mentality. So he, he does things like he feeds them. There's nothing. It's the desert. He gives them food and water so that they learn to trust him. He protects them from their enemies so they learn to see that he is good. And he does this with them for several months. And now they're finally at the threshold of the promised land. God says, I'm going to give you your own land. See, when you lived in Egypt, <laughs> that was a bad neighborhood for you. I'm going to bring you your own land. You're going to grow things. You're going to live. It's a fertile land flowing with milk and honey, as he says. God is investing in them so they can see themselves as belonging to him as his chosen nation. So they're at the threshold of the promised land. Moses has led them to a place called Mount Sinai. And he has ascended the mountain to meet with God. And he's going to get instructions for what's next. But he's been gone for a while. The text says 40 days. And uh, the people are getting anxious. They're getting nervous. Where is Moses? Has anyone seen him? 
Mm, these other nations are starting to crowd around us where we're camped. What are we going to do? So let's pick this up in verse 1, chapter 32 of the book of Exodus. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron, Aaron was Moses' brother, and said, come, make us gods who will go before us. And as for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and he announced, Tomorrow, there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. So before I make some observations, a few things. I can relate to one thing in this, and that's the eating and drinking. Two of my favorite things to do in the world. What about the rest? You know, the calf, it seems foreign to our experience, doesn't it? I mean, none of us are going to go home today and maybe go to Home Depot and get one of those golden calf projects. That's not going to happen. No one's going to build a cow statue today. Not even one that says, eat more chicken. It's not going to happen. But do we build other monuments that we bow down to? Are there things in my life that are more important to me than God? Do we build monuments of our reputations, our achievements, our money, our physical beauty, our productivity? I might find the golden calf brand of idolatry kind of odd, but if I'm honest, I have to admit that I can probably relate to them more than I want to. So these ancient people, when they bowed down before a statue, what was really in their minds? I mean, did they think that that statue was actually the god? Well, it's hard to know exactly what they're thinking, but it seems that the mindset they had was that was an image of the god. It was a representation of the god. And what they would do in their rituals is their rituals were designed to kind of download the power and the presence into that idol so that they could encounter that God. That's how they looked at it. So a few observations. Right off the bat, we can see that it seems that idolatry flourishes in uncertainty and anxiety. It tends to flourish when we face times of uncertainty about the future especially. We're anxious about the future. And that's what these people were feeling. They were brought to the mountain they didn't know exactly what was next. They had heard they're going to a promised land, but there was kind of a lull, and they got nervous and anxious. And this makes sense, doesn't it? This is the security piece. I'm looking for my security. I can't see God, but I can see the balance in my 401k. I can't see God, I can't see exactly what he's doing, but I can see my resume. I can see the degrees on my wall that talk about my education. The Israelites faced uncertainty about the now, so you know what they did? They reverted to what was familiar. 
They worshipped one of the gods that they had worshipped in Egypt. We do this too in times of uncertainty. Now, maybe like a lot of people, well, I've felt this the last few years. <laughs> I've kind of felt like I'm in a lull. What do I mean by that? Well, I, honestly, maybe it's just my age, but I feel like I've expected more. What does he mean? I expect it to be like further along, <laughs> especially with God. I expect it to see more of him at work. I expect it to see more and to be more. It seems that I've been waiting for Moses, and he doesn't seem to be coming. Maybe some of you are like that too. You're waiting for something, and it's just not happening. Something good, and it's just not happening. And under this kind of anxiety, what's the tendency? Well, we go back to what we know, which is usually not a good thing. Under this kind of uncertainty, I know myself, I'm tempted to escape into pleasure or into ego gratification. You may have your own brand of what you do when you're uncertain. The second observation is that idolatry tends to blur God's uniqueness into God and. Idolatry is not usually atheism. Atheism is kind of like the new fad. Mm, that's not what idolatry seems to mostly be. It's mostly I want God and something else. I want to mix. I want to mix God with something else. We see this in the text. You know, the people wanted to mix golden calf with the God of Israel. They wanted to mix that. Interestingly, if, if you read the text again, it says they wanted to do a, a festival and an altar to the Lord. And whenever you see Lord capitalized in the Old Testament, that doesn't mean Lord like boss or master. No, no, no. That's a generic Lord. When you see Lord, all L-O-R-D capitalized in the Old Testament, what that is, is God's covenant name. Some translations will actually put in Yahweh for that. Y-H-W-H. So that is God's covenant. What do I mean by covenant name? You know, every culture has a name for God or names for God. But God only revealed his special name to one group of people, Israel. The only people on the planet that actually knew God's real name. Now, some of us understand this. You guys that are married, you folks, do you have like... Well, do you have names for each other? Even if you're dating, right? You got names for each other. Do you have names for your kids? Like nicknames for your kids? All right, in my house, okay, four boys. Okay, some of you are like, what? <laughs> your poor parents. Yes, <laughs> four of us. We all had nicknames. So the oldest was Whip. There was Whip Rabbit. The youngest was Mick. And I was Peanuts. That was my nickname, Peanuts. Now, why was I Peanuts? Okay, it's kind of a weird story, but when I was really small, I used to really like to eat those red pistachios. Anybody remember those? When you bought pistachios, they actually used to dye them red, I think, to cover up the you know, imperfections of the shell. So I was the little kid that ran around with all the red on his fingers after eating these things. So I think I couldn't say the word pistachio. So I became Peanuts. That was my name. So if this sermon makes no sense at all, you can blame that on red dye number five. <laughs> that was my name. That wasn't my brother's name. God's name was special to the Israelites. It was not to be mixed with somebody else. You know what that's like? That's like, picture you have a special name for your, let's say for your wife or husband. Let's say it's sweetness. And 
you not only call somebody else that name, but you do something like this. Sweetness, I'd like you to meet Sweetness. It's going to be the three of us now. All right, that's going to go over like a lead balloon. So no wonder, God, if you feel that way, no wonder God was not happy about this. So the Lord said to Moses, go down because your people, <laughs> love this, God says, Moses, your, your people, go down because your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. He's repeating this to make sure we didn't miss it. That's what the people said. What does he mean by what I commanded them? So Moses is on the mountain right now. God is going to inscribe himself. He's going to inscribe in stone his Ten Commandments, or the Bible actually says the Ten Words. So the people have already heard this. If you go back to Exodus 20, don't have any gods before me, number one, and don't make any images of me or anything else, whether in heaven, earth, or the sea. Now, these really go together. I mean, scholars have said these really go together. If you break one, you break both. If you keep one, you keep both. So here we see that idolatry and images kind of go together. Worshippers of the true God will not try to make an image of him or anything else. And here's the thing, folks. The Israelites heard this. It's only been a matter of weeks, maybe months, since they heard this in Exodus 20. And here they are now. It's Exodus chapter 32. And we see it's gone in one ear and out the other. And God is ready to be done with them. And we're treated to one of the most bizarre conversations in all of Scripture, where basically God and Moses go head to head. And God says, I'm done. And Moses says, you can't be done. You can't. What would the nations say, God, that you let these people die in the desert? And God actually allows Moses to argue him into relenting. You know, whenever you read the Bible, especially the Old Testament, and you read about God being angry. Do you have a problem with that? I know a lot of people do. And the stereotype is that the God of the Old Testament is angry. And the God of the New Testament, he's just nice. Those are stereotypes. Those are not true. But when we see God angry in the Old Testament, why do we have a problem with that? I think one of the reasons is that we just don't do anger well. I don't think we do anger well. As a culture, I don't think we really have a a grasp of what right anger looks like. And what I mean by that is, how often do we see examples of good anger, of right anger, of, of the kind of anger that, that gets upset at injustice and propels you into good action? It's rare. It's rare. Instead, I think we're just a bunch of angry people that are angry because we don't get what we want. But God's anger is different. Why is God so angry, though, that his people have mixed him with an idol? I'm going to look at that more in a few minutes. Moses knows that God's anger is righteous, and he doesn't tell God you're wrong. Instead, again, God allows him to argue him into relenting. I pick it up in verse 14. It says, the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. So Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, back and front. 
The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. So Moses is coming down the mountain with Joshua, his right-hand man. Verse 17, Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting. He said to Moses, there's the sound of war in the camp. Sounded like war. Moses replied, that's not the sound of victory. That's not the sound of defeat. That's the sound of singing I hear. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned. He threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain, and he took the calf that people had made. He burned it in the fire, and then he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. So Moses gets this firsthand, what's been going on. He's only heard about it. The Ten Commandments, the great Charlton Heston film, comes out, I think they play it every Easter, don't they? You know, and it's pretty impressive. You know, thus saith the Lord. Charlton Heston, you know, he's got the big white beard going on. And, you know, before that, they make him all oily, trying to show off his physique. It's really kind of funny. Quaint. That's a family film. You know, you can watch that with your family. If you took this, what's actually going on here, and put this on film, this would probably be one of the cable channels after dark. The dancing that these people are doing, they're not exactly doing the wobble. They're worshiping a fertility god, one of the fertility gods of Egypt. That's what the calf was representing. That calf represented a fertility god. So any ritual connected with fertility is going to have what in it? Lots and lots of public sex. So that's what he sees. What a scene. What a scene. What other observations can we make about this? One thing we, we do see is that idolatry, mm, it adores the maid in place of the maker. Idolatry adores the maid in place of the maker. Here's what I say. We've got gold, we've got calves, obviously the, you know, the wine, the dancing, the sex. These are good things. These are all good things in their place. Gold is a wonderful adornment. Revelation 21 talks about in the permanent city of God, when God establishes his permanent city, the streets will be paved with gold. Gold is a good thing. The animal kingdom, calves, part of the animal kingdom created by God. Genesis 1.25, God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good. Sex, dancing, wine, all good things. All things that have their origin in God and that he has pronounced good. Idolatry is a distortion of good things. It is an attempt to substitute what is made in place of the maker. Notice Moses' reaction. It's the same as God's. The tablets get thrown down, and he gets out the grinding stones, and the next thing you know, the people are drinking golden Gatorade. What's that about? I think that's Moses' way of saying, you really want this idol? Do you really want this? Then you're going to eat it. And you ready for this one? Every time you go to the latrine and you see the glittering muck, you're going to be reminded of what this idol really is. So next, Moses has to have a conversation with his brother. So he says to Aaron, verse 21, what did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? So Aaron says, don't be angry, my Lord. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. 
As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. <laughs> Listen to this. This is almost comical. This is what he says. He says, then they gave me the gold, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. If you're a parent or a teacher, you can relate to this kind of answer, right? I mean, you know, like when you ask your four-year-old, okay, why did you write with the Sharpie on the wall? Or if you ask your six-year-old, okay, why did you hit your sister in the head? You know you're not going to get a good answer. <laughs> you're just not, because they're children. But Aaron is no child. He's Moses' brother. Actually, you know what he is? He's Moses' mouthpiece. So prior to this scene, we know that whenever Moses spoke to the Pharaoh, he didn't speak directly, he spoke through Aaron. Moses may have had some kind of speech impediment. And he spoke through his brother Aaron. So Aaron was the channel for God's words. And here he, we see him led astray by what? Was he afraid of the people? They were going to physically harm him? Did he also doubt that Moses was coming back? Did he want to maintain his status, his position? What if he would have just said no? So here we see another principle, another observation that idolatry breeds when godly leaders don't lead. Idolatry breeds when godly leadership is lagging. Who am I speaking to now? Obviously, fellow elders, team leads, parents, bosses, older brothers and sisters. How about everybody? What is leadership? Leadership is influence. If you have influence in any sphere, you're a leader. So I'm speaking to everybody here. You have influence over other people for good or for bad. And we see this same principle throughout the history of Israel. When Israel and Judah had godly kings and leaders like Deborah, Hezekiah, Josiah, idolatry waned. But when the Ahabs came into power or Manasseh, the pure worship of Yahweh was garbled with the gods of the surrounding nations. So you'd have Yahweh and Ashtoreth, Yahweh and Molech, who required burning of the children in the fire, Yahweh and Baal, the party god. We see this also in the history of the church. When godly leadership is lacking, idolatry flourishes, and the church loses its distinctiveness. And what I mean by that is, in order for the church to be able to speak to the culture, to speak health to the culture, the church must be distinctive. Idolatry blurs that, and without godly leadership, it flourishes. When I choose to look for my satisfaction and security from sources other than God, my family suffers. My colleagues, employees, they suffer. And it's the same for you. So where are we now? We made some observations about the text. We talked about leadership and what idolatry looks like. But let's come back to something again. God, why were you so angry at Israel making an image of the golden calf? There's a part we haven't read yet. Verse 25, it says, Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control and so become a laughingstock to their enemies. It's odd language. They were running wild. It's almost as if they had become like wild calves 
that couldn't be controlled. And I think that's what, what the writer here is getting at. The Israelites are starting to resemble their idols. And we see this principle spelled out in numerous places in the Bible. I'm just going to look at two of them. Psalm 115, 4 through 8 says, But their idols were silver and gold, made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak. They have eyes but they cannot see. They have ears but they cannot hear. They have noses but they cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel. Feet but cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Listen to this. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. One other reference, Psalm 135. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, made by the hands of men. They have mouths, but they cannot speak, eyes, but cannot see. They have ears, but cannot hear, nor is there breath in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them, as will all who trust in them. Do you get this? Are you getting any sense of why God may have been so angry at the idolatry? He can't stand seeing his people become like the useless idols that they worship. Eyes but cannot see and ears but cannot hear. Blind and deaf. He cannot stand seeing his people become blind and deaf. Blind and deaf to what? Blind and deaf to him. Blind so that they cannot even see him at work. Blind so that they can't see him working in the world. Blind so that they can't see him working in their lives. And deaf. Deaf to his words unable to hear his invitation to come and know him, unable to hear him say personally to each one of you, I love you, I love you, unable to hear that. This is the anger of a parent who finds their child using narcotics or looking at porn, knowing that what your child is devoted to will be their destiny. Whatever you revere, you resemble. You will become what you worship. And if you choose to worship idols, the non-gods of money, sex, power, self. You will reflect those things to your own ruin. Let's go back to those original commandments. Don't have any gods before me and don't make any images of me or anything else. So I mentioned sometime a few minutes ago that these commandments go together. Idolatry and images go together. We've just read the story of what it looks like to break them. And of course, if God says to do something, we should do it, right? Because he knows what he's talking about. That should be sufficient for us. But why the command of not making an image of God? Why not do that? The story of the golden calf, in this section of Exodus, it is in a section, if you read the chapters before and after, that deal with building the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the portable structure that the Israelites took with them as they journeyed through the desert, they took this portable structure with them, and it was where they met with God, kind of like a portable temple. It was where they could experience his presence in the middle of the desert. Now, in the chapter surrounding chapter 32, God gives Moses detailed instructions of what this tabernacle should look like, inside and outside, and the details are exquisite. For instance, uh, what kind of wood to use when you're building this thing, how long and wide it should be. I love this one. What color the curtains should be? How many tassels? What color the tassels should be? But in all this description, there's one thing lacking. If you lived in the ancient Near East and you snuck into the Israelite tabernacle and you looked around, the one thing you would notice is there was a great omission. There was no image of the God in it. And you would actually be 
again, ancient Near East, you would be flabbergasted. You'd say, what kind of temple is this? What kind of tabernacle? There's no image for God. Well, if you thought that, you'd be wrong in a sense. It was a deliberate omission, and actually it wasn't an omission. Why is it that there's no image in God's tabernacle? The reason that there's no image, that there's no idol, no statue, is because you're the image. The people were the image in the tabernacle. The people were supposed to reflect God. And we remember God's original intent for humanity in Genesis 1.26, where God, speaking before the royal court of heaven, says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Let's get basic here today. Why are we here on this planet? What is our purpose here? We're here to be God's image. We're here to reflect his power and his glory and his love in our lives. That is our calling as human beings. That's why we're not to make images of God, because we're the image. You're it. Now, we have to acknowledge we've not lived up to this. We have to acknowledge that we've built golden calves in our lives. And some of us today are staring at the glittering muck. We've tried to make our own images of God. Where do we get a true image of God? We know that we've blown it. We have not reflected him perfectly. We have chosen other things above him. Where do we find a true image of God? In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes to a group of Christians in Colossians chapter 1, and he writes this. He says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So knowing that we were going to get it wrong, God sent his true image into the world, Jesus Christ, that we might be forgiven our idolatry and so that we might receive a new heart to worship the true God, that he might make us the true Arnold on the wall for the people around us. So stand with me, please. We're going to do some work with God right now. Lord, we acknowledge to you today that it's easy for us to look at the Israelites and say, well, they, you know, these people were bizarre and um, ignorant. And, um, Lord, we, we have to acknowledge, if we're honest, that we're, we're really just the same in a lot of ways. Um, we've put things before you, God. And we've, we've elevated things. You know, a lot, and a lot of them were good things. We've elevated them in our lives to a, a place where they really don't belong, places of importance that really are for you. So, Lord, we come to you today for your cleansing and your forgiveness. Lord, some of us have allowed idols to crowd you out, and we come to you now looking to you for power to overcome that. And Lord, some of us, honestly, our desire for you is really low. And if we're honest with you, we will tell you that you know, a lot of times we don't really even want you. Or we're not even sure we believe in you. So we acknowledge that to you today, Lord. And we know that you're the God that goes after the people that don't want him. 
You're the God that pursues the people that love idolatry because you want to cure us of that. Lord, some of us today feel like we're so far in the glittering muck that we feel like there's just no way we're ever going to dig out. And I think we're right about that. Lord, we look to you as the one who can pull us out and cleanse us, clean us up. Lord, we also know that, well, some people here that have never connected with you. They're here. Maybe they don't know why they're here. You know it's not an accident. And I know you're reaching out to them, Lord. And I know today is the day for them, or at least some of them. Today is the day. Lord, I know you're able to speak to their hearts and move in their hearts. Lord, we want to reflect you. We know that, that we are made for this. We are made to reflect you, God. We're made to be the moon to your sun. We are made to reflect you. So, Lord, help us to move into your calling, what you have us. Give us the desire. In Judges chapter 6, Gideon, on God's command, went to take down his town's idols. And he didn't go alone. He took 10 people with him to help. And so it is with us. If you have idols that need to come down in your life, you're gonna need some help. So we're gonna have some people down on the right. They're gonna pray with you after the service. You know, if this is, has uh, stirred something in you that you wanna, you wanna do more business with God, please don't leave. Come, come and see somebody.
pray with me father God it is amazing that we get to openly worship you God that we get to be the image of you to the world around us and Lord I don't know about anyone else in this room but I know that I fall short of that so God I ask for your forgiveness God, I pray that you would restore in me your image. God, that you would turn me more and more into the image of your son. God, help me to shed the things that are not of you so that I can reflect who you are to the world around me. And God, that's the prayer that I ask for each one of these people in this room. God, I pray that you would be there before us. Give us the strength that we need. It's in your holy and precious name that we pray. Amen. Have a great week. Stay safe on the 4th of July. We'll see you next week.